We're going to be in 2 Peter today, chapter 3, verses 11 to 14, particularly verse 14, but here the ramp up to verse 14 where Peter writes to this young church, a circular letter in Asia Minor. He says, verse 11, since these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God? Because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since we are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. Let's pray. God, bless the understanding of your word by the power of the Holy Spirit. Teach us in Jesus' name. Amen. There's a man named Albert Schweitzer, who was one of the leading lights of the last century, of the French-German philosopher, theologian, physician, accomplished musician who was a Bach aficionado, won the Nobel Peace Prize in 1952, uh, very gifted. He, as a young man, wanted to find the kernel of truth or the historicity of Jesus, and so he went on this search, and, and he came to the conclusion that Christ was the greatest man who ever lived. And that Christ, the great man, the prototypical example of what manhood should really be, Christ thought that by his death he would inaugurate a kingdom of love, and yet it didn't happen, so it was up to us to carry out this kingdom of love. And he wrote a book called A Quest for the Historical Jesus, and this is what he said in part, one of his key statements in the book. He said that the wheel of time, the wheel of time rolls onward, and the mangled body of the one immeasurably great man who was strong enough to think of himself as the spiritual ruler of mankind and to bend history to his purpose is hanging upon it still. And that is his victory and that is his reign. And what Schweitzer was saying, he said, he said, he said you know, the reality of Christ is that he, he died. He's an example He's a glorious example of the one immeasurable man, the prototype of what true manhood should be, but he still is hanging mangled upon the tree with his broken body, rejecting the resurrection. And, and, and so the, the quest for the historical Jesus is, leaves him on the cross. He had a contemporary, he was a younger man, but a contemporary named Adolf von Harnack. If you study systematic theology, you'll read von Harnack. He was one of the German theologians who was a forerunner of today's Jesus seminar. And von, von Harnack took the New Testament and said, we're going we're to throw away all the miraculous and, and all the healings and the virgin birth and the bodily resurrection and the ascension and the poured out Holy Spirit. And we're going to get to the kernel of the life of Christ. And we're going to embrace the kernel and reject all the other myths of the Bible. And so he said, throw away the husk and embrace the kernel. And the kernel is this. It's an ethic of loving people with a selflessness like this great man Jesus did. And so, and so Schweitzer and von Harnack are both on the same page to a degree, said we're going to get rid of the historical and embrace the, the man Jesus. Now, just as a side, this happened after the last service. There's a dear woman who worships here. She's from Britain. She's got one of these beautiful British accents. Not all British accents are beautiful. 
But she's got a beautiful British accent. And she came to me and she said, you know, Albert Schweitzer was a family friend. I said, really? Same in my family. He kind of fits with us too. And he's kidding. Albert Schweitzer was a family friend. And I remember as a young girl sitting in our, our house and he was telling us what he believed about Jesus. He was an older man. And I remember as an eight-year-old saying, Dr. Schweitzer, I don't believe that. <laughs> I said, Yes, good for you. And so she said, my father debated him, but I thought, wow, that's pretty cool. But they, they, they rejected the miracles, the resurrection, the ascension. They want to get to the kernel. But see, the problem, when I read the New Testament, there's lots of problems with that. But, but, but all the promises and all the call to diligent, faithful, sacrificial, dancing, happy, rejoicing living is tied to the hope of heaven which is preceded by the glory of the crucifixion and the resurrection and the ascension. The New Testament makes no sense whatsoever unless you understand and believe in the reality of the glory of the resurrection and the ascension, the outward Holy Spirit, and the promise of a new heavens and a new earth where Jesus has gone to prepare a place for us. Let me just read a few passages. In Romans chapter 12, verse 2, it says, Do not love this worldly system. Or the things in this worldly system, for it's passing away. But do that which is good and acceptable in the perfect will of God. And later in chapter 12, he says this, repay, verse 17, no one evil for evil, but give thought to what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends upon you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves. But leave it to the wrath of God because it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And so Paul says to this church at Rome, don't be vengeance seekers. Don't hold on to bitterness. Realize that an eternity is coming and God will deal with all of us. And then he says later in chapter 13, he says, besides this, know the time the hour has come for you to wake up from sleep, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Or Titus chapter 2, verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, teaching us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, waiting for the blessed appearing, the glorious reality of our God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, eager to do good works. Now, why are we eager to do good works according to this? Why do we wait patiently? Because a great day is coming, the new heavens and the new earth. And then 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 3, For I have delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Jesus Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, and then to the twelve, and then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive. He says, this is the first importance. He's resurrected. And because he's resurrected, verse 20, Christ has been raised from the dead. He is the first fruits of those who've fallen asleep or died. For as by a man came death, 
by amen has come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all have died, so in Christ all shall be made alive. So everything we hold to is based upon the historicity and the glory of the resurrection and the ascension and the poured out Holy Spirit and the one who's preparing a new heavens and a new earth for us to live where joy will be unfathomable, glorious, and never-ending. And I think of the Sermon on the Mount that's trumpeted by so many people as the strongest, one, most wonderful ethic that's ever been preached to many people that say that are not believers. And I think, well, have they read the Sermon on the Mount? For example, Jesus says in Matthew 5, 11, Blessed are you when men shall revile you and persecute you and say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. So if you're persecuted, you'll be rewarded. And then he says in the next paragraph, it says, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. And then he says in chapter 5, verse 43, it says, you've heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. In chapter 6, he says, when you do, give to the needy. Uh, don't let your right hand know what your left hand is doing because when your father sees in secret, he will reward you openly. And it says, when you pray, pray to the father. He says, when you pray, go to your inner room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. When you fast, verse 18 of chapter 6, your fasting should be so that others will not know that you're fasting, but only seen by your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Very next sentence. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust corrupt and where thieves break in and steal. But lay for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust corrupts and where thieves do not break in and steal. And so I just read this and I say to myself, self, everything in Scripture is tied to the promise of the glories of heaven and the God who rewards us, especially in glory. And so I ask you and I ask myself, as I've studied this passage and pondered it and read it, do you glory in the hope of heaven? Do you glory in the wonder of God and what he's prepared for us? You see, the, the false teachers in 2 Peter had two primary statements they made time after time according to the text. The first statement they said is, where is this God? History goes on and on and on. It's the unfolding of nothingness. Where is this God? And the second argument they said, and where is this judgment? There's not going to be any judgment. If God cannot be defined, how can there be a judgment? And Peter thunders forth. God is defined. He is eternal. He's triune. He died on the cross for our sins. And, and so if you are part of the crowd that says history is going nowhere, there's no judgment, there's no nothingness, God, if he exists, cannot be defined. What really they're saying at the bottom with an asterisk is that flotation devices are attached because welcome to the land of nothingness, a journey going nowhere, the, the myth of insouciance. Live like you will. Live heedlessly. And these particular false teachers hook their teaching onto a sensual lifestyle of runaway lust. Now, I know and you know people. They, I, I, I'm impressed by them. I thank God for them. I know and you know people who 
say, well, if God exists, I can't define him. And yet, they live selfless, kind, altruistic lives. They, they stand up for the poor and they defend those who can't defend themselves. I'm, I'm amazed at them. And I think, thanks be to God for noble-hearted non-believers. And they're all around us. But then I think, how much more noble-minded and giving and caring would they be if they believed that there was an Abba Father who was triune in his glory and who died on the cross for their sins and everything they do is lived out from a heart of appreciation and joy and gladness and dancing because of who they are in Christ. And I just want to say, may they get the gospel of grace. There's a man named Richard Hayes who wrote a dissertation that was published as a book, and it sounds like a dissertation, um, but it's good stuff. And this is, this is what he says, just a couple of sentences. The church community, that's us. The church, the local church is God's eschatological beachhead or his kingdom beachhead as they look to the, to the future. It is his beachhead, the place where the power of God invades the world. See, God's power invades through his people to the world. All of Paul's ethical judgments are worked out in this context. He's absolutely right. All of Paul's ethical implications and pushings and proddings are based upon the fact that God is and there is an eternity and God is gloriously good. See, we live in the already but the not yet. We've tasted the coming kingdom but not its fullness. That comes in eternity. The already and not yet provides a critical framework for making all moral discernments and making all human relationships. And I think he's, he's absolutely right. And so this call in verse 14 of 2 Peter 3, he says, brothers, be diligent. Since you're waiting for these things, you're waiting on tiptoes for eternity. You're waiting on tiptoes for the world to come. You be diligent, which means you push and you strain and you go forward. You be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. You live in such a way that you're honoring unto Christ because he can come in any hour, any day. So you be a person who's diligent. I say to you, church today, I say to myself, be diligent. Strain, go forward. The book of Hebrews is written to a group of people that were teeter-tottering on not being diligent. And, and so the whole book is about the glory of Christ and being diligent and encouraging one another day after day. And chapter 4 is one of the key chapters of Hebrews. And it says in chapter 4, verse 11, let us therefore strive to enter that rest. Strive, the same word for diligence, so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Let, let us strive. He gave the example of the Old Testament believers who, who, who ignored and denied God and were buried in the desert. And he said, you know, don't, don't be like this. You strive to enter the rest. You be diligent. The same word is used in verse 5 and verse 10 of chapter 1. Second Peter, where Peter says, make your calling and your election sure. For if you do these things, you will never stumble. Make your calling and make it, make, be diligent to make your calling and your election sure. And then he says in chapter 6, verse 11, and we desire each of you to show the same earnestness and to have, have the same full assurance of hope until the end so that you may not be sluggish 
but be imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. And we desire that each of you show the same earnestness or be diligent. And I say to yourself as I say to me, listen, don't be sluggish. Be diligent to be found in him spotless, blameless, and at peace. So I'm talking about this issue of diligence. Why diligence? Why do we strain? Why do we go forward? He uses the same word of waiting in verse 12 of chapter 3 in 2 Peter. Listen, waiting for and hastening the coming day of God. You hasten by your obedience. You wait for it. Verse 13, but according to his promise, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth where righteousness dwells. We're waiting. Stand on tiptoes, waiting, waiting. So we're waiting for it. Verse 14, therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him. So, so we're standing on tiptoes. We're waiting for the new heavens and the new earth where true joy abounds. And I love the statement that I've mentioned the last two weeks by Lewis and the a book called Letters to Malcolm, where he says that the new heavens and the new earth compared to this earth is like coal to the diamond or the root to the flower. I love that. He says, yes, the coal will be the diamond, but you take, you take the beauty of, of our landscape here, and you, it's just a, a, a dim statement of the landscape of heaven, multiplied times 10,000. You, you take the most delightful meal you have now, and you multiply times 10,000, you have the feasting in heaven where your taste buds will explode in your mouth. Or you, you have the joy of laughter and the embrace of friendship that can be so rich now and so glorious now, and you multiply that times 10,000, and you have the wonder of fellowship in heaven or the worship that is so fulfilling there or the projects that are glorious now. See, heaven is just... Everything we see now multiplied thousands of times. And it's, it's glorious. And because of that, we have hope and we wait. Now, I did uh, vacation Bible school this week. I was my wife's lovely assistant in the third grade. We had 13 kids, eight, eight girls and five boys. And so I'm there the first day with the boys, trying to get to know them. And I say to them, you know, I say, I said, guys, I love dogs. Oh, we all love dogs. I said, you know, my daughter and her husband have a dog, and we have to play with the dog a lot. It's only a year old, and it's a beautiful dog, and she's fun. Do you guys have dogs? And one little boy said, I had a dog, but he died last month. I went, oh. Another little boy said, I had a dog, but he died about three months ago. I went, oh, great. Another little boy said, I had a dog, but somebody stole him last year. I said, this is bad. This is going no place good. And then I said, well, what? And then I said, well, I have a lizard. I said, oh, thank you. You have a lizard. He said, yes, but my lizard escaped in the house. We can't find him. <laughs> and I went, how's that working out for your mama? I didn't say that, but I was thinking, you know. And I just thought, oh, man. How do you change the subject? And I said, guess we're having for snacks for today. You know, we're talking about snacks. And, uh, and I, I, they're, they're nine years old. So I couldn't launch out in this, but I want to say to them, you know, you know you, let me tell you something. There is a place awaiting us where your dogs don't die. There's a place awaiting us where your sister-in-law doesn't die of breast cancer in the prime of her life. There's a place awaiting us where one of your best friends doesn't drop dead of a heart attack playing basketball at the age of 42. There's a place awaiting us where there's no tears or cancer or heart disease. There's no brokenness or pain. And it's glorious in his heaven and it's there because Jesus is God. And Jesus died on the cross and rose victorious over death. 
and he's prepared a place for us. And so we, we stand on tiptoe and say, now you're nine years old, you don't realize this, but your life is going to be filled with joy and sorrows. You're going to see brokenness and pain and, and, and horrific days and, and times of despondency and depression and times of dancing and laughter. We live in a fallen world, but a new day is coming when all these horrendous things are wiped out and there's glory, glory, glory in Emmanuel's land. And I want that to motivate me. I want to think about heaven. I want to glory in heaven. I want to sit back and say, death is not the final word. I'm doing a funeral at 2 o'clock today. Death is not the final word. Heart disease is not the final word. Broken children are not the final word. Birth defects that just break your heart, not the final word. Glory is the final word. And the last enemy that's defeated is death. And we stand and we say, death was your victory, grave, where is your sting? And I say this with all pastoral decency, in that you shake your fist at death and you curse death as you die. Because glory awaits. I, I want that. And the second reason we, we strive and we, we we're diligent and we lean forward and I, we're not sluggish is, is because of these promises. Uh, everybody should remember 2 Peter 1, 3 and 4. And think about it. It's, it says this, his divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these, he's given us his very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature. Stop. So, wow. As, as I glory in Christ and am filled with the Holy Spirit and I love the Word, God takes the Holy Spirit and takes our unique personalities, our unique settings, our unique ethnicity, intellectual giftedness, callings, and He makes us like Jesus. Blows my mind. That the end result of God's work in my life, my sanctification as a believer, is that I be like Christ. And as, as, I, as I do this, I participate in the divine nature. And it says here that if I do these things, I will never fall. Now, that means, it means you fall to oblivion. You're falling destroyed. We're all going to stumble, but we don't fall. We get up. And so we go through this pattern of we rejoice in the greatness of Christ, we repent of, my, of our sin, and I have my sin to repent of all the time, and we, re, we, we request that God change us by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so one reason that we should be diligent and go forward is that we progressively are changed into the likeness of Christ. I want that from me and you. I want our homes to ring with laughter and joy and forgiveness and mercy and tears of brokenness because of who Christ is in us. So don't be sluggish, be diligent. Be diligent, be found in him, spotless and blameless and at peace, glorying in the cross. Thirdly, we should be diligent because as we're diligent, we escape the corruption of a fallen, broken, worldly system. We escape the decay and the corruption and, and, and the degradation of the worldly system. It says, again, in verse 4, it says, by which he's granted us, his precious promises and by his promises so that we can participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. Now think about that. You escape the corruption in the world caused by evil desires, the brokenness, the decay, the atrophy, the, the, the heartbreak. There are a thousand 
heartbreaks that you can avoid if you just follow Christ. And you, you, you avoid the, the, the decay and the corruption of the worldly system. There's a verse that I've thought about so much in the last few years. It's in Proverbs 4. And it says this, the, the path of the righteous is like the light of dawn that goes brighter and brighter until full day. The way of the wicked is like deep darkness. They do not know over what they stumble. First of all, the path. There's a path. And as you walk with the Lord, it grows brighter and brighter. But the way, it's not a path, the way of the wicked is like deep darkness. They do not know over what they stumble. We all know people who are brilliant and gifted and, and incredibly well honored who stumble over rudimentary issues because their way is darkened. They, they, don't, they, they stumble. They just stumble. And we all know very basic, average people who just read the Bible and say, God, you're glorious, you're triune, you're good, you've spoken. I'm going to walk that way. And, and the path is bright. Listen, the path is bright. Psalm 1 says, Blessed is a man who doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of mockers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on that law he meditates day and night. He will be like a tree planted, rooted by streams of water, whose fruit is produced in season and his leaf never withers. Not so the wicked. It's like the chaff that the wind blows here and blows there. See, we escape corruption because we have a place to stand. We're rooted. I've been amazed the last few months. Every major magazine I pick up either has a cover story or a significant story inside the edition that deals with the trans issue or the bathroom usage or this is the, the the, the preponderance of words are incredible over this issue that I cannot believe we're dealing with. And as I've, I've thought about this issue, I just want to encourage you, when you talk to people, talk with grace and kindness and, and give a reason for the hope we have. And, but don't throw bricks. Don't belittle. Don't make fun. This is a sad, sad phenomenon. But listen, if you believe, if you really believe that many people do believe this, that, that everything around us is the impersonal plus time plus chance. There's no creator God. If, he's kin, if he, there's a creator God, he may be defined, but he, he was, he's, he's absentee. And if you believe that everything is impersonal plus time plus chance and there's no rhyme, no reason to living, then, then why cannot I separate my psyche from my anatomical heritage? And you just sow incredible confusion. And that is a far cry from the gang of 1776 who said, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal and they are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights. And see, there were children of, most of them, not believers, they were children of, of the Enlightenment who believed that there, there is a God who is the creator God and his laws are written on our heart. But we're Beyond the Enlightenment, now we're children of post-modernity, and we believe that each man makes his own decision within his own tribe for himself, and no one can tell him what to do. And so they have no place to stand. And I, I weep for them. I weep for them. They're, they're stumbling over the very rudimentary things of life. 
Conversely, our worldview, if you're a believer who holds to the Bible, in the beginning God made the heavens and the earth. And God, before sin into the human race, made mankind as male and female. Therefore, gender is part of the goodness of God's creation. And so if I really believe that gender is part of the goodness of God's creation and that God made the heavens and the earth and he's triune and he's glorious, then what I ask is if, as God reclaims the fallen and broken parts of my life, I step back and say, God, what does it mean to be truly masculine as a, as a man? And the women say, what does it mean to be truly feminine before you, great creator God? And so it gives us a place to stand. We say gender is part of the goodness of God's creation. And we look at all men and women and say all men and women are worthy of respect in Christian love because they're made in the image of God. Therefore, racism is a horrendous sin against God. Or elevating one group or one nationality or one economic class above the other is an incredible sin against God because all men are made in the image of God. And we relate to people as fellow image bearers. But we have a place to stand. We have a place to stand. And where people that are far more intelligent than many of us just stumble. They just stumble. It's interesting, Albert Schweitzer, I've been reading some articles about Albert Schweitzer and parts of his book. Albert Schweitzer was, was a great pioneer, uh, humanitarian in West Africa. And, and in 1915, He's 40 years of age. He's been on this quest to discover the historic Jesus, and, and he's helping people in West Africa as, as, a, as a physician. It's 1915. He's going down a river in West Africa, and he comes across a, a, a group of, of hippopotamuses. I don't know if they're called a pride or a herd or a gathering or a baseball team, but it's a, it's a big group of hippopotamuses. And hippopotamuses can be incredibly deadly and so Schweitzer is taking his canoe, and he's, he's, he's gingerly going through this group of hippopotamuses. And he has this epiphany, and he writes about this in his book. And he, he says, Schweitzer believed that as his philosophy of reverence for life was given to him as he went through all these hippopotamuses, and he said, isn't creation glorious beyond words? This is what he said. He says, sooner or later, there must dawn the true and final renaissance which will bring peace to the world when we all embrace a universal reverence for life, close quote. Now, what, I read that. I said, this was written in 1915. This is 1915 when, when his country and Europe was gutting themselves in a world, world called World War I, a needless, stupid, inane war. They, they killed a whole generation of European men and 120,000 American men. And, and then in 1952, he kept preaching this, what he called, reverence for life. And, and in 1952, he was given the Nobel Peace Prize. And I want to say, well, this, is, this is seven years after his country surrendered to the Allied forces. And it was discovered they had murdered six million Jews. And he says, we've got to come to the point where we can think well enough to have a universal reverence for life. I'm going, it just doesn't work. And where, where do you... So, so, so you, you come to this issue of, of, of knowing Christ gives you a place to stand. Fourthly, very quickly, as we are diligent, we're, we're diligent because 2 Peter says, as you're diligent, you richly enjoy the assurance of salvation. 
He says, if you forget these things, you're nearsighted and blind, and you're forgotten, you've been cleansed from your past sins. Verse 9, therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to make your calling and your election sure. For if you practice these things, you will never fall to oblivion. In this very way, you will inherit and be richly provided for an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let me tell you something. There's nothing much more joyful in life than to lay down at night and to say, Lord, I'm going to sleep now. If I don't wake up, I'll see Jesus face to face because I know I'm saved. I know I'm saved in part because there's a, a, a cry within my heart to be obedient to the Lord. And when I stumble and fall, I get up and I run to the cross. And that's incredible joy. It gives incredible satisfaction. And so as you go forward and as you cry out, God, I understand I'm saved by faith alone through the work of Jesus alone, but the fruit, the fruit of that is a life that wants to be pleasing to you. The fruit of that is adding to my faith, goodness into my goodness, you know, knowledge and self-control and perseverance and godliness and brotherly kindness and love. And, and, and the fruit of that is, is having a heart that says, oh, God, make me diligent. So I, I, I say to you, don't be sluggish, be diligent. Enjoy the fruit and the glory and the goodness of your salvation. And then, and then very, very quickly, the, the question is, how do you pursue diligence? And let me just boil this down to just a few minutes. So when you read the Bible, Galatians 5 says, the flesh lusts against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. So when you become a believer, you receive the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is more powerful than the flesh, but we still have remnants of flesh in our body. No matter how strong you are in your faith, you will struggle with sin to the day you die. And so you put sin to death by the power of the Holy Spirit, the Bible says. And here's where we blow it, I think. We, we blow it in, and then we look at our young people and we say, do this, do this, do this, don't do that, don't do that, don't do that, do this, do this. And, and, and that's okay, but that's really behavior modification. That's kind of B.F. Skinner. The way we conquer these things is by the power of the Holy Spirit. And the power of the Holy Spirit flows into our life as we understand, see, and relish the beauty and the goodness and the satisfaction and the dancing and the singing that's found in Christ. So if, if I had one sermon to preach on this issue, I would say we've got to see the beauty of Christ. We've got to do these things because we see the beauty of Christ. And we do these things where there's whatever. We do these things because they're channels by which the Holy Spirit is unleashed in our lives. Now, very quickly, I read a book recently. The author talked about these issues are, are, are what do you call it, pre-decisions. Pre-decisions mean that I determine in my mind out of obedience to Christ to do certain things to unleash his power in my life. Just a few basic things. Pre-decision pre I'm going to worship the Lord in the Lord's day. So I'm going to do it. That's what I do. I, I'm a believer. I worship with God's people on the Lord's day. I, I, I do it. I'm going to be people, a person who reads the Bible and who tries to pray and seek God and, and I, I rejoice and repent and request. So, so that's a pre-decision. I, I set up a time to do that. I, I believe in biblical stewardship in the area of tithing. So, so when we get paid, and thank you for your very kindness to us, when we get paid, we tithe. If you wait to the end of the month to give what's left over, guess what? You'll never give. Because the month is always longer than the paycheck. 
So you make a pre-decision, I'm going to honor God with my being in this area and other areas. Because, and I do that as I see the beauty of Christ. Now this week, like I said, these songs at VBS were incredible. And so I came in Thursday with my little group of third graders, and we were in here singing, and we all do hand motions and all that kind of stuff, and they're so sweet. And, and they sang a song, Deeper Still, and I've got to be honest with you, I sat, stood there, and I had tears in my eyes. Because I said, this is theology on steroids. And it's a VBS song. Let me just read it to you. Below the surface, beneath the waves, where I was searching to find my way, you found me. In quiet waters, you called by name. You showed me mercy. You showed me grace. You found me. Jesus, you found me. That's, Jesus found me. He searched. He called me by name. He says, it says, beneath the surface, I'm finding truth, a greater purpose. I never knew Till you found me, Jesus, you found me. And then the chorus is, in the deep, in the deep, your love is breathing life back into me. Now that I know how mercy feels, I want to go deeper still. <laughs> Jesus, you found me, and now that I've tasted mercy, I know how it feels, I know where I'm going, I want to go deeper still. I want to go deep in the school of obedience. I, want to, I don't want to be sluggish. I want to be diligent because, Jesus, you found me, you breathed life into me, and you're conquering dark places in my heart. Come, Lord Jesus. Now, let me tell you, that preaches. So, church, be diligent. Have the hope of heaven. The outward man is perishing. Yeah. But the inner man is being renewed day by day. Glory awaits. Rejoice in that. Receive your meals today and the embrace of friends and the laughter of children and the silliness of dogs as a foretaste of incredible glory. And it's good. Let's pray. Lord, we say with this little VBS song, Ephesians 2, where Paul says, and you were dead in your transgressions and your sins. But God made you alive in Jesus. So Lord, thank you. Thank you that you found us and you breathe life in us. And we pray, Lord, you'd find our friends and our neighbors and our coworkers and, and, and our, our, our children who don't know you. God, breathe life into them. Let us speak Christ to them. And as we taste your goodness and see your glory and know of your kindness, we cry out, Lord, I want to know you deeper still. So, Lord, don't let us be sluggish, but let us be diligent. And I thank you for your goodness. Lord, honor the name of Jesus in our midst, I pray. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you very much.